Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. This week, we have a very special unlocked episode from the archives. This is the French Revolution special part one. It was a two-part series that we did, I think, started back in 2018 or 2019. can't remember. A couple years ago, we did this. We studied the French Revolution. We read a couple books about it. We actually read like too many books about it. So it's too many. Why are you reading so many books? Someone asked Just us to make a podcast. research we did for it. And I made the list of all the books that I either read all of or part of. And then I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, I've read too much again. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty high up there. I think I remember thinking at the time I hadn't read this many books for one of our podcasts since the Jar Jar Binks episode. Yeah, and that's another high watermark one if you haven't checked it out. But a lot of books went into it, seriously. For real. But yeah, time has lost all meaning in these coronavirus years. But whenever we first produced this podcast... In the before time. We thought that enough time had passed to make it so that now was the right time to present it to the public. It's been the right amount of time. Whatever it is, we don't know, but it's right. A few people have asked us to unlock this episode over the years. And part of the reason that we're doing it now is because we are now in a sort of preseason break on the end of April of 2021. It will be the seven year anniversary of producing our show for the first time. We were like, you know, little babies compared to now setting out on that podcasting journey for the first time. And we're coming up on a seven year anniversary for it. And we're also working on a really exciting project. It's a cartoon show for Means TV that's going to be premiering this fall. And we want to wrap that all up in April and then return to doing the show then strong as ever. But we thought we'd put something out from the archive for people to listen to who haven't heard it. If you're interested to hear more about what's going on with the Mean CV show and stuff, we've also just uploaded a bonus episode for patrons where we're just chatting about current events and also the show, among other things. So definitely check that out. If you're interested, you know, become a donor, patreon.com slash seriously wrong. We can't make the show without our generous patrons and donors, your positive feedback, your donations, this sort of stuff allows us to make the show that we do and is allowing us to scale up to make a better show in the future. So thanks to everyone who's already doing that. And thanks to people who are going to do that after they hear the first part of a two-part episode. And they're like, oh, I want to hear the second part. And then they're like, you know what? Six bucks isn't that much. And hey, I made supporting independent content. That's great. You also get access to the Discord server. We have a book club, which is facilitated by our friend Franz, who's been in a few episodes. There's always fun stuff in the Discord server and on the Patreon. And also, who doesn't love supporting independent artists creating meticulously detailed audio content about historical revolutions? I know I do. Wow, I feel like you really just covered all the bases there. That was beautiful. You just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, that just came out. Everything, I even, everything we needed to There wasn't to even a natural break. It was just... I've just been animating this Papa and Boy thing so long. You put a mic in front of me and I'll just be like, bah, 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 and just like do a straight hour and a half every roll episode of Seriously Wrong if you let me, you know? But yeah, I'm super happy to be putting this episode out in particular because of not just all the reading we did for it, but I think we put a lot of heart and effort into making this one. And it's been behind the paywall for so long. I'm like genuinely excited to see what everyone who hasn't heard it yet thinks of it. And we also have the second part, as you mentioned, behind the paywall. We've also done kind of a third part, but also the first part of a different revolution, the Haitian Revolution, which has a lot of historical ties to the French Revolution. Part one of that is also up on the Patreon, and it kind of follows in after the second part of the French Revolution. And we're planning to continue that Haitian Revolution 
and the Revolution series in general soon. Now that Sean is nearing the end of the animation marathon, he's been running for a while now. It's the most I've ever animated in my life by a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's going to be really, really cool. Yeah, we're super excited to share the results of all that animation with you in the fall and our little show that we've been cooking up. But yeah, here's a little podcast show that we cooked up a while ago. Yeah, do you want to pop in the metaphorical tape? The yeah, tape? the tape that we cooked that is now ready to serve. Right, so it's sort of, in a sense, like popping it out of the cooking and popping it into the plate. They've got a phrase for this, mixed metaphors. Yes. They're warned against them. Oh, I thought they were warned in favor of because when you mix metaphors, you, you can more just fidelity, add, yeah. yeah, you can add more elements. Just a plain metaphor, you're going to get like, well, sort of some misleading implications. But when you start mixing metaphors, that's when you get to the truth. That's yeah, how you... the, those fine details. And sure, they're a bit more confusing to explain. And you might have to explain a whole bunch of specific details, but everyone enjoys that. You're richer for it at the end. I think the more time that you spend sort of going over the little details and explaining every little bit of it, the more satisfying it is absolutely yeah so without further ado here's the tape here's the french rev part one warning marie antoinette actually never said let them eat cake so it's a myth it was a fictionalized account written later to sort of like parody her yeah it was weird before i learned a bit about the french revolution i thought she was saying the people are hungry let them eat cake they should have cake we should all have cake oh like a positive thing yeah <laughs> Like, even just now, I was confused about how it could not be a positive thing. Like, I didn't get it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just seems like such a nice thing. Like, yeah, let them eat cake. Yeah, like, letting let people cake. eat cake is really good. Like, you could put that in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. It's so good. I would, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be like, you know, oh, the peasants are starving. They don't have bread. And she's like, well, let them eat cake. Uh, like, I'm rich. I'm out of touch but I'm also malicious. It's still like, it's hard for me to slot that in because it just so goes against how I always thought about it until no, like cake is minutes good. The only, ago. The real problem with cake actually is all the sugars and starches. Like, it doesn't have a lot of nutritious content. It can no, be bad yeah. for your heart and stuff. And we should make healthier cakes too. Healthy treats and sweets. This, is, this has been a warning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Sean. And my name's Aaron. And, uh... I'm just getting over a really bad flu, really bad flu right now. It's been a real terror. You do seem more terrible today than yesterday, even though you're getting better, apparently. Yeah, I didn't sleep very well last night. I think that's part of the problem. But also, you really take for granted mouth wetness when you have it. And when you don't have that mouth wetness, it's unpleasant, folks. But that's not what this episode is about. This episode is about the French Revolution. It's not about what having a flu is like. Well, uh, you know, but I think it ties in. I really I think have that, to insist. I think I, we could talk about your flu, get into details. How does each part of your body feel? Oh, no, I'm flattered, but I really think we should get into the real meat and potatoes here, the French Revolution. Now, up until pretty recently, I didn't really know much about the French Revolution at all. I, I don't think I was ever really taught about it. 
in school, or if I was, I wasn't interested in it, and I don't remember anything that I was taught at all. Yeah, didn't know a lot. I mean, like most things in history, not a history knowledge person. So we decided, hey, let's learn about the French Revolution and figure out how we can learn from it. What of it is relevant to today? This is like a major historical event. I saw multiple people saying founding moment of modern democracy. It's the origin of the concept of the left-right political spectrum. The idea of left versus right, which is still so common in our politics today, started in the French Revolution. And sort of the modern idea of politicians started in the French Revolution. And politics, as we currently think of it. Yeah, like people with strong personalities rallying support behind them, getting elected into office. That isn't the way things are done when you have a king and his divine sovereignty is passed down through the generations. You don't have to do that. That type of politician isn't something that exists. I always find it really funny, the sort of connotation difference between this high-minded, like, democracy versus, like, the sort of, ooh, politics. Uh, (laughs) Like, if you're like, the French Revolution is the origin of democracy, it's like, oh, that's so righteous. That stirs something in me. But you're like, oh, it's the origin of politicians. And it's like, ooh, (laughs) ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. Well, every push has its pull, you know? (laughs) That's really, that's hashtag super deep balance. The big deep thoughts here. So, (laughs) and the way that it originated in the French Revolution was that the people in the National Assembly who sat on the left side of the king, like represented the commoners, were more politically egalitarian. You know, they wanted like the king to not have a veto over bills in the constitutional monarchy, for example. Yeah, it kind of changes over time. But the consistent thing is, at least early, like the right being more in support of the king and the left being less in support of the king. And apparently this is like an old timey thing that was really standard is like if you're at a table with the king sitting at the end, the people sitting on the right side were like the king's favorites or like the... (laughs) Is the right hand man, you know? Oh, yeah. Or sitting at the right hand of the Lord, as Jesus will when he ascends into heaven. Sure, yeah. (laughs) So, the way that I tend to think about the left right distinction in the modern time in relation to the French Revolution, and this is part of the reason that I really wanted to understand the French Revolution better, is because I found sort of potent the divine rights of kings concept, which is like the people on the right believing in sort of the king being anointed by. God, literally God, or you could say by circumstance, to be in charge. And in the modern day, in the left-right spectrum, I think of like the right as representing uh, different divine rights or different, they might not necessarily frame it in terms of God, but like hierarchy is natural. Hierarchy is anointed by God. That's a right-wing idea. Yeah, well, and especially already existing hierarchies. There's a heavy bias to what already is versus what could be. Yeah, absolutely. And then so, in contrast, if we think about the left, we represent challenges to existing hierarchies and decentralization of power, authority, narrative, and democracy in a meaningful sense. People having control of their own lives. Everyone, you know, not just people of certain ethnic or gender groups getting authority over others. So that's what I find useful or interest. like that's the lens that I look at left-right through. So without further ado... What do you think? Should we do an episode about the French Revolution or should we do an episode about me having the flu and what that, what that's like? I'm still on the flu thing. Everything you just said. Meh. <laughs> the flu. Oh, yeah. Your feedback is noted. 
<laughs> oh, on good. what you would I, prefer. I That's it. why I asked. Yeah, yeah, right. I was curious. <laughs> but this isn't a democracy. All right, fair enough, yeah. If that's how things are, that's how they should be. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by the divine right of advertisers to bring suggestions on what you should think, feel, and buy to your ears, eyes, and uh, your eyes in a different way through reading. Oh, and today's episode is also brought to us by the divine right of landlords to own the buildings in which we live and extract huge amounts of wealth from us placed there by god that right oh this episode of seriously wrong is actually also brought to you by the divine right of major tech companies to collect more data on more people than has ever been collected before in human history without oversight and use it for whatever purposes they want that's anointed by god divinely chosen by god for them in that context Another thing I think this episode is brought to us by is the divine right of Disney and other huge intellectual property owners to continue making money off of cultural touchstones that were created by people who are long dead. God says only that company gets to draw Mickey Mouse. So. Oh, and today's episode is proudly brought to you by the divine right of small business owners and families to be at the center of our political discourse around elections. Now, God chose it, said, boop, boop, we're always going to be talking about you. You are at the center of everything political forever. It is how it is, and that is it. Another divine right is the divine right of nations, whatever that means and however you want to define it, to kind of draw lines on the ground and then put a whole bunch of men with guns on those lines and threaten to shoot anyone who crosses them. That's natural, it's beautiful, it's ordained by God. Men with guns on lines. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by the divine right of zookeepers to keep animals in their cages. And generally speaking, sort of the divine right of humankind to conquer and defeat nature as an adversary. Just another good old divine right sponsor of the show too and finally today's episode of the seriously wrong podcast is proudly brought to you by the divine right of billionaires to live lives of opulence to own and control more wealth more property more power than even the most powerful kings of history could possibly imagine while at the same time other people starve to death and that wealth kind of sits around in the billionaires metaphorical pockets that's their divine right and they owe nothing to anyone who is starving or in poverty those things aren't connected those numbers can just tick up and up and up add as many zeros as you want on the end billions trillions quadrillions doesn't matter they can just keep it all because it's their divine right and that's the uh, sponsor of today's episode as i was learning about this two things that really kind of struck me was first people have very dichotomous reactions to the french revolution first is this like ideation like this amazing moment in history beginning of modern democracy you know, declaration of rights of man, just like just all these new things happening. And then on the other hand, there's this disgust and horror of revolutionary violence and killing. 
And the other thing that really struck me about it was how this intellectual movement of the Enlightenment and all these philosophers talking about ideas and sharing thoughts about how the world could be comes into the real world gets put into practice gets gets attempted to put into action and like just how much of a difference those ideas existing and being around made when there was kind of these other crisis things that were happening at the beginning that caused the revolution to start it w- it was the fact that there had been such a change in how people thought about the world that it brought about these new systems, this this attempt at something like brand new that hadn't been done before. One of the things that I found really interesting about it, like in learning about it for the first time, it, it just clicked for the first time for me that revolutions are not a moment. I guess unconsciously, I thought in a way like Tuesday, you have one system, Wednesday, you have revolution, then Thursday, you have the new system. It's simple. And it's like, it's a, it's a, you just simply sum it up really quick. What happened on Wednesday? But it's like, no, the French Revolution took a decade. It took, there's like phases and there's all these different factions. And it's like... Yeah, it's complicated business to regime change a country. And it's fascinating to think of like what it's like to go through that, go through a revolution that lasts years and years either as like an active participant, like a politicized person who's involved in the day-to-day of it, or as a person who just lives in this country that's experiencing this. Like, a year is a long time. Like, if you're reading about history, it all seems like, oh, you know, in 1779 they did this, 1780 they did this, etc. It doesn't doesn't seem that long. But like a lived year is a long time. So like starting in 1789 and then like the progress that happens going up to 1793, it's like a four-year period. And the real sort of bulk of the French Revolution stuff that we talk about is in that five-year period starting in 1789. And it's a huge amount of stuff. In like five years, it's just- Yeah, a lot lot can happen (laughs) in five years. (laughs) Something I was really surprised to find out is that the guillotine was invented during the French Revolution- and was seen as a symbol of egalitarianism because before the existence of the guillotine, which is something that quickly chops off someone's head and quickly kills them with little pain. Yeah, not a lot of time to feel pain. And previously, there was all sorts of like weird torture techniques they used to kill people who were given death sentences. And it was unequal justice and that the poor would face the most torturous deaths. And so it was sort of like this utopian yeah beautiful idea that we're all everyone gets killed the same (laughs) and it's quick it's painless it's humanitarian yeah like you know you can see the especially compared to being tortured to death Mm -hmm. if i had the choice guillotine any day so yeah the brilliant inventor joseph ignace guillotine imagine that bit like your last name (laughs) It's, this is the th- invention that you're most famous for. Your name lives on forever in the name of this <laughs> giant chopping mechanism for cutting off people's heads. Yeah, I think it also caught on just because of how symbolic it is and how kind of there's some showmanship to it. Mm-hmm. Come gather around, everyone. Watch this person's head get chopped off. And apparently they kept using it in France. It was the official method of capital punishment up until they abolished capital punishment in 1981. 
So very recently. Yeah, it's funny to think about because obviously it's such a viscerally horrifying idea to have enormous blade drop down and separate your spine from your head and toss your head into a little basket as your body starts to bleed. Yeah. Disgusting. But compared to like, oh, we're going to stretch you out on this table and rip your intestines out or something like that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's progress. Like that was a step forward for sure. I mean, even compared to like other more modern ways, people like the electric chair, I'd go for guillotine over electric chair. I'd rather not be executed at all <laughs> if I could pick. Yeah. And I mean, I, I oppose the death penalty, mm, Yeah, which is a lot like someone else who opposed the death penalty. Maximilien Robespierre, you know, one of the big names of the French Revolution. Before the French Revolution, he was known as the incorruptible because he was so notoriously interested in the issues of justice. He was like a lawyer. He'd protect uh, and fight for lower income people, for righteous cause. So he was known as the incorruptible. And the French Revolution is kind of like the story of his corruption, right? Like it's... Uh, If... You know, you could argue whether he was corrupted or whether he was perfect the whole time. (laughs) But definitely, like, at the beginning, he was great. He's against slavery, in favor of the rights of women, universal suffrage, against foreign wars. During his kind of rise to prominence through the Jacobin Club, it's like in France at this time, there's all these political clubs popping up and it's Enlightenment times and people are like discussing politics in public and like new ideas and sharing things, this exciting intellectual time. And he's this super well-read on the Enlightenment lawyer who sticks up for downtrodden people. Great speaker. Yeah, he's famously associated with the guillotine because he's like one of the lead Jacobins that was, it's debated, but he's seen as responsible for the reign of terror being like one of the leading orators that have pushed people towards this mass violence. But he started off in opposition to the death penalty. And in one of the books that I was reading, I only uh, read part of it. It It's about Robespierre specifically, but when asked why he changed his mind on capital punishment, his response was, times have changed. Kind of the moment when he changed his mind was when it came time to be like, okay, are, are we going to kill the king or not? And Robespierre is like, yes, we have to kill the king to save the revolution. So it was like sort of the circumstance of escalating events caused him to change his mind, you know, first for the king, but then, yeah, he became a big believer in cleansing violence by the end. There's something that's a little bit haunting to me about the Robespierre character development over the course of the revolution and starting off as this pristine sort of like social justice warrior, this this real, <laughs> this guy you can really look up to. Yeah. And people still stand for Robespierre, like despite everything. And, and maybe there's good reason to do that in some ways. But like this turn towards cleansing violence, <laughs> it's sort of disturbing in a way of like, how do we know in the modern age as people who advocate for big change and want to see the world become a much better place and have beautiful ideas about how the future should be? How do we insulate ourselves from whether you call it corruption or not, or like deviation or whatever, this potentiality towards violence and towards an ideology that not just supports violence, but like sees violence as the means from which 
goodness can come. Yeah, literally, like, virtue needs violence in order to be realized, is his belief by the end. And I disagree with that. <laughs> but but it, if you were placed in the stresses of a revolutionary period, and you have that paranoia of the outsiders and the insiders that want to chop your head off. Right. <laughs> and like, I can only imagine over a multi-year period of this stuff, it starts becoming more about the choppy chop than about the righteous justice. And yeah, so there's this weird sort of haunting thing for me about Robespierre, of the corruptibility of humankind, the corruptibility of individuals, even the most high-minded. Mm, I don't yeah. want to become desensitized to that level of violence and paranoia. And I don't want comrades, co-conspirators, and people I love to be brought there either. Yeah, you don't want you and all the other people who are trying to make the world better to have a sort of circular guillotining match where you just kind of all end up without heads. Yeah, no, I don't want that at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even want an oversimplified version of it where all the smart and good people get on one side and then they just do one round of guillotining and it's done. And they're like, phew, got rid of the bad guys. Now we can stop with all this choppy chop nonsense and yeah. focus on this glorious, well, I mean, beautiful like, society. If, if that would work, it's not that I would be super stoked for that, but I'd be like, okay, in historical necessity, yeah, maybe. But given that it's never that cut and dry, yeah, it's it becomes more difficult to morally back up. Okay, well, let, let's let's talk about this fat, ill-bred boy, the king. Yeah, well, king Louis. Say, let's um, <laughs> talk about what kind of conditions, what happened to bring the incorruptible himself, Robespierre, from that position to let's chop as many as we can. And as yeah, as you said, starts off with this fat, ill-bred boy. <laughs> so King, king Louis the Sixteenth. he was the king of France, and he was widely seen as being in over his head, not really interested in being king the same way as his father was. Yeah, and, he got crowned at 19. He just wasn't into it. He was like, I'm way too young for this. And something Aaron taught me is that his dick didn't work. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, he gets married to Marie Antoinette when they're both like 15. So she's from Austria. She's from Austria. This is a political maneuver to create an alliance between these two countries that had historically been at odds for quite some time. So then when, you know, a young prince marries this future queen, you got to produce some offspring. And it's not happening for like years. And some of the sources I read on this said that this was a theory, but others presented it as fact that he had phimosis which is when you're uncircumcised and the foreskin is far too tight and getting an erection hurts because you can't get fully erect. It like gets caught in the tight foreskin. So couldn't have sex in that condition. He had to have a procedure, but he was scared to have the procedure because he's a little scared, fat, ill-bred boy. Yeah, so it took a long time for that to happen, which kind of further made him sort of a laughing stock of the public. Like he wasn't thought of well. Yeah, he wasn't respected. And Marie Antoinette was sort of seen as this example of the extravagance of the royalty, that they got everything. They got to have this sort of opulent lifestyle while, you know, the commoners in France were starving. Additionally, there in the century before the French Revolution, France's population had exploded from like 20 million to 26 million. So a lot more mouths to feed. And the country was nearly bankrupt, first because it had fought the Seven-Year War against Britain, 
and lost over like territories in North America. And then because the royalty was mad about losing that war, they funded the American revolution against Britain to kind of like get back at them. They were like providing money and arms to the American revolution, which further put the crown into a whole bunch of monetary trouble. So they weren't able to provide for their people. And it was also the the tax system was set up in a way where effectively taxes were levied the most or only levied on the poor because the nobility and the clergy, the clergy didn't have to pay taxes and the nobility could get exemptions. So like the situation in, in France was that there was an increase in taxes that was hitting the poor the most, more than other categories. And then people were also aware of like, that they were paying tithes to the church and that most of the tithes money was going not to like their local priest, but to like higher up clergy people that they didn't actually see directly. Also like deregulation of the grain market is something that came up when I was reading. Removals of price controls on bread. Like bread's a big thing. French people at this time need their bread, love their bread. It's how they live. Uh, at, at, at one point, it had got to a loaf of bread equals a month's wages, like in this early pre-revolutionary period. So like people are starving to death. Marie Antoinette's walking around with fruit in her hair. Her husband can't even get her pregnant. Now, if we had a nice, strong king who could get his wife pregnant, then I'd be okay with starving every now and then. <laughs> but this guy, he can't even get her—he can't even get her pregs. His hobby was being a locksmith, and so like there was like political cartoons circulating about like, oh, locksmith can't find the keyhole, can't figure out how to unlock the key. <laughs> Apparently in this time in like the pre-revolutionary period and then also through the French Revolution is there was a lot of like very vulgar political cartoons that had just very uncensored content like with no bounds of decency whatsoever right sort of like a parallel between that time and now it's like we got our nasty memes these days you know where jeb bush is drinking garfield's cum uh, <laughs> my favorite meme <laughs> the old jeb drinks garfield's cum meme but <laughs> back in the day that you know they they would do that and be like oh maria antoinette because she can't get it from her husband she's so horny for all the guys you know she's gonna fuck yeah, her kids sleeping all around court yeah yeah kid fucking thing <laughs> at the end oh god today's episode of seriously wrong is proudly brought to you by dr robespierre's famosis treatment are you suffering from untreated royal famosis is it painful to consummate your marriage with a foreign-born queen are you the laughing stock of your court because it hurts when you get engorged hi I'm Dr. Maximilian Robespierre. Me and my friends at the Jacobin Medical Club have invented an incredible new medical device that can quickly and effortlessly treat phimosis. It's a tiny little guillotine. It's, a, it's like a guillotine, except it's very small, and you put the, the foreskin through there. <laughs> now back to our show. <laughs> We now go to King Louis XVI, sexlessly fiddling with locks in his private quarters, as usual. Uh, let's cut it. Oh, no, I didn't get it. Damn it. Tricky little lock. Break you. Yes, yes, uh, come in. Uh, my lord, I've got some uh, terrible news. Okay, yeah, <clears throat> take a breath. 
The peasants of the countryside are very upset about what the, the lavish extravagance of you and your wife. Oh, they're just hangry. One of the issues is indeed their hangriness, sir. The crops have been horrible this year and, mm-hmm. and many yeah, are no. literally starving, sir. Oh yeah, on that note, dinner, uh, almost ready or it's almost dusk. So I know how those peasants are feeling. I am famished. Absolutely, my king. Dinner will be on as usual at 6.30, yes. Perfect, perfect. Uh, but uh, yes, my liege, the peasants are threatening to kill you, have you dead. Oh, they get like that. That's because they love me so much. You can't get that mad at someone that you don't love. Uh, you know, I understand that they're upset, but it's uh, you know, it's not the first time there's been a famine. I really got my sights set on that hunting trip tomorrow. I think I have tea in the afternoon. I wonder if Marie wants to join for tea. My liege, um, they've drawn this cartoon of your famosus dick. Oh, they they drew this about me? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's see the little <laughs> I mean the little crown on the tight foreskin. It's, it's supposed to be you, my liege. I uh, I mean, I can't say that doesn't hurt. Oh yeah, famosus, it really should <laughs> be treated, <laughs> sir. But you know what they say? They uh, you always hurt the ones you love, right? That is what they always say. And I told you I'll get it treated. Just not right now. It's uh, busy. I have a hunting trip tomorrow. Uh, my liege, they have also drew this picture of your queen engaging in group sexual activity with myself and the other staff. Well, that that's just... Uh, burn every copy and have anyone who circulates or mentions that torture to death on one of our weird ancient torture machines. Absolutely, my lord. Everyone who was working on the bread issue, we got to get them on this because this could threaten the whole regime. Absolutely, my lord. What do you think about to kind of, you know, jazz up the people's love for the court once again? We get Marie in some beautiful big hats, topped with fruit, very queenly. I think it's an incredible idea, sir. Not only will you win their respect to say, look how much bigger our hats are, but you also say, if you're hungry, look, we have food. Yeah, we have food, even if they're not getting it, like we have the food, so mm-hmm. it's that's a comfort. What you've heard about the starvation has been exaggerated. Look, abundance. Exactly, to get people to visualize it, that there's food. And so that king won back the respect of his peasantry and lived a long, healthy life with an unsevered head. The end. So people are really upset about the situation. The king, you know, wants to be a good leader. He wants to be seen as a good leader. He wants to get people on board. Um, And there's a sort of popular call to bring back what's called the Estates General, which was something established in the 1300s in France, which was like a parliamentary body that's made up of three estates, one for nobility, one for the clergy, and one for the third estate, which is just everyone else. And so to appease the popular anger and discomfort, like because people are very engaged in sort of the philosophy of the Enlightenment, there are reading groups. Yeah, all these political groups and stuff forming. The king agrees to reconvene the Estates General in the year 1789, the first time in 170 years. But the thing about the Estates General and these three estates is that 
the nobles and clergy is very, very small percentage of the population. Yeah, it's like 3% between the two of them. But then the third estate is the vast, vast majority of the population, but owns much less land and is getting a much rougher deal on the taxation measures and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And one of the big issues that the third estate is pushing right away is to remove these exemptions on taxes for the nobles, like increase taxes on the nobles reinstitute price controls on bread. Like we want bread, basically everyone should get bread, but they can't get this passed because both the noble and the clergy agree that it shouldn't be passed. So even though they're only 3% of the population, they hold two thirds of the balance of power in this parliamentary body. And so obviously members of the third estate are like, that sucks. We should switch to one man, one vote, proportional representation. The nobles and clergy are like, well, No, that sucks. I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, no, you guys are the vast majority of the population. If we did one man, one vote, then you would be in charge. But we're in charge. <laughs> That's kind of how things work. We've been in charge for a long time, and we plan to keep it that way. And that eventually comes to pass where, glossing over a few details here when we're covering... Yeah, lots of details. De- <laughs> get glossed. <laughs> but it comes to a point where the members of the third estate show up to where the general estates meet and they find themselves locked out. And it's been disputed that this was maybe like an accidental thing and not a malicious thing or like that there was some sort of misunderstanding. Right. But the way that it was interpreted at the time by them was like, oh, you guys are locking out the third estate. Like you don't want us to participate in democracy. You're like biting your thumb at us. Yeah. So what we're going to do is go over to a nearby tennis court, start our own national assembly. Like the third estate is going to become the general legislative body of the whole of France. Yeah, and we're the national assembly. This is our sort of dual power system in a sense. Like we're setting up our own thing. They'll go to this tennis court, which apparently is actually a handball court. Like the sport that was played in it was what we now call handball. But historically, it gets called tennis court a bunch. Anyway, and this is the tennis court oaths they pledge to make a constitution. We're the new National Assembly. We're going to make a constitution like, rah, they raise their fists. They're all together in this thing. National Assembly is formed at that time. And then it's kind of an uneasy thing, right? Like this unauthorized body that is now declaring themselves the National Assembly of the country. The king kind of doesn't know what to do. So he's like letting them exist, but not really like doing much to appease their demands or to legitimize them in any way. So it's it's this uneasy situation where they're continuing to exist, but not really being recognized in the way they want to be recognized. So, you know, a few things happen. They break into a military hospital, steal some muskets, form a National Guard to protect themselves from the king's soldiers. And around this time in the summer of 1789, you get what's called the Great Fear where there's suddenly all of these rumors going around and there's like all these varying contradictory rumors that, you know, like the reason that the harvest was so bad that year was because there was a plot to intentionally starve the lower classes or that foreigners were coming and stealing the grain and that the king was conspiring with other kings that they were going to like come into the country and try to stop the National Assembly from exercising the will of the people. And so the sort of common people of France are starting to get very like agitated and defensive and paranoid to the point where there's one historian who theorized that 
maybe the reason that happened is because they ate a bunch of moldy grain that had hallucinogenic properties. It's not generally accepted as the reason why this happened. I just thought it was interesting. Right, right, right. No, it, ma- yeah, it makes sense that that would cause some paranoia. Yeah, so like tensions are mounting and this kind of all ends up blowing up when this uh, finance minister who was popular, who was calling for bread for the people, who was instrumental in getting the estates general to convene in the first place, this guy Necker, the king ends up firing him because the king's like, you know, you're not helping me like I... I'm less popular than ever. I put mm-hmm. you up. You were supposed to make you're supposed me to look make people good. like me. Yeah, right. you were supposed to make me look good, and it's not working. So he fires him, and then the people in Paris riot. And this is one of the first kind of like major outbursts of mass violence during the revolution. They kill their mayor, and they put his head on a pike and parade it around town, kind of a grisly sight. And they storm the Bastille. Yeah, it's kind of a touchstone moment in the revolution. Uh, and the the best, Bastille is a prison. Yeah, it's a prison. It's like used for weapons storage. Uh, it's a place where people get tortured. So it's kind of this symbol of monarchical despotism. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a popular narrative that there's just constant torture going on in the Bastille. But then when they actually raided it and started taking the weapons and stuff, there was actually very few prisoners there at the time. And they literally like tore the building apart with their hands and like whatever tools they had, (laughs) like, and then took bricks home as souvenirs, literally just took this building down. It's kind of a beautiful thing. So yes, this outburst of mass violence uh, soon after the National Assembly releases their Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is one of the first kind of founding documents of the Rev, declaring that sovereignty in the country lies with the people, uh, just implicitly leaving the king out of it. And of course, like these events do nothing to simmer tensions between the king and the people of Paris. Hey, my fellow peasant. Oh, hey. I'm really hungry. Yeah, me too. But just had a great idea. Ideas are the mover of history, shoot. Well, you know this bread shortage. It's all the king's fault. Mm -hmm. What if we don't have a king anymore? Because we get rid of him. That's not a half bad idea. No king? Get rid of the king? Get rid of the king. How do you do that? Do you just ask him, like, hey, beat it? Oh, just storm in. Then prison, death, probably. Kill the king. Yeah, you gotta kill the king. Otherwise, he might come back. Probably gonna have to kill his kids, too. um, It's unsavory, but it will bring everybody bread. Yeah, no, and I see a lot of death in my day-to-day life. In fact, I'm I'm practically dying here myself. Yeah, we're worried about the the king's life. Like, ooh, I'm so squeamish about killing the king, even though me and my family are about to die under his rule. What am I thinking? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) Perfect. So, yeah, let's head out. Cool, cool, cool. Let's do it. Oh, one question. Hmm. Do you think there's any chance that we kill the king and then the food shortages will continue somehow? No, I think it'll be rain and bread. And we will be standing out in the city streets with our mouths open, little tiny loaves popping into our mouths. I haven't told the other guys this, but I think there'll be enough bread left over to make nice warm loaf pillows out that we can sleep on at night. Cool. Yeah, I like that. Nice. Yeah, I really like the idea of catching the loaves in my mouth. I think about that a lot. All right, I'm in. Let's do it. Revolution. Woo! Woo! Revolution time. I'm in. I love your enthusiasm. Oh, one more question. Sure. Um, Do you think there's any chance that the killing won't stop with the king? I mean, I wouldn't worry about it. Just minor. 
And it'll definitely only be nobles and the king. It won't be anyone who's been suffering or anything. Cool. Nice. Yeah, no one else. Just a tight couple at the top that are needed. Yeah. And then bread time. Cool. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I think this is going to be easy. I think it'll take like a day, two, maybe a week tops. It's sort of like Tuesday, old system, Wednesday, revolution, Thursday, new system kind of thing. Yeah, it's like how long does it take to kill the king? It doesn't take that long. Nice, easy, bread in the oven. You know how much flour they got in those royal silos, hey? It's a lot. Really? Yeah. So, excuse me for licking my lips, but... No, no, no. Lick away. Thinking about that flour. I'm still thinking about how tiny those loaves of bread will be falling from the sky. Do you ever just get so hungry where you think about a silo of flour and then lick your lips? Just, mmm. Mm, all that flour, yum, grain has been turned to flour. Oh, yeah. I mean, who hasn't? A silo of flour? Common experience. Oh, my God. Tummy's grumbling. Yeah, we're thinking a lot about grain these days, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Grain's very political for us. After the revolution stuff. Yeah, it'll fade into the background. I mean, we'll still enjoy bread, obviously, but... So, uh, yeah, under these insufferable, horrible conditions, grain is part of everyday life, but under the society that we hope to create, the uh, grain is very much part of our everyday life, but a silent part. Rather than the part that screams for our attention, screams for our intervention. Yeah, that's the beautiful future that is just around the corner, a few days away. I love it. I'm in. No further questions. I see this going very well. So let's talk about the Declaration of the Rights of Man. How good was that declaration, that founding document of all modern democracy? So it starts off pretty strong. Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. So that's actually sort of a radical idea to found social distinctions on the general good rather than Yeah, hereditary that God imbues sovereignty into the royal line or whatever. <laughs> it takes like the for the many, not the few sort of idea, but like makes it really philosophical of like social distinction should be based on the well it's just the common good yeah i mean that could could be interpreted in a lot of ways like you're you're saying the many yeah it's true i guess you could be like it is the common good that there are billionaires because they create so many great jobs yeah well and i'm just thinking of one of the things that this document does is only apply to certain people so yeah it's not universal they're calling for a distribution of rights from the king to the bourgeoisie yes yeah exactly to and men people, specifically property owners property owners with enough men about four million of the at this point 28 million people in france would have counted under this thing so i don't know if the, i don't know if the common good means the many the 28 million or if the common good means the common good of the four million who get all these rights yeah <laughs> But then again, it's still... It is pretty radical. I don't... I, you know, I, I was going to wait till the end to undermine it, but then it just came up and I had to say it. <laughs> like, I advocate for lesser evil voting, so I have to be consistent here and <laughs> advocate oh, yeah, for, over, like, lesser evil... Over the monarchy? Historical progress. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is way better, for sure. Well, also just, like... I'm not a royalist. We can, hey, well, no, I'm not a royalist either. Hey, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Neither of us Don't are royalist, royalist jacket me. Even just going out there and declaring the rights of man in itself, that's pretty, it's a step up from oh, yeah, not the, doing that. That rights exist and they're not just like, again, king's whim because the king comes from God. 
Oh, let's should look at the second one. The purpose of all political associations is the preservation of these rights, and they are liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression. Sounds pretty social justice warrior there at the end. Resistance to oppression. And to be clear, I, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a point in favor of this. Yeah, I was reading something. I can't remember where it was, but they were talking about what oppression meant to them. And it's all tied up in nobles and the king, obviously, because these are like the rich members of the third estate, mostly like really pushing this thing. Yeah. And their actual approach to the things that in a contemporary sense are talked about oppression, they were overall as a revolution weak on. Like there's individuals, you know, there's something called like the the Society of the Friends of the Blacks that were like an anti-slavery organization that a lot of Jacobins were involved with. Right. And there was individuals that called for rights for women and stuff like that. But like as a revolution, especially at this point in the revolution, where they're moving towards a constitutional monarchy, they weren't actually good on any of this stuff. Yeah. Or like, but then the other way to frame it is that Like, they actually did get rid of oppression by kings and nobles. And now we're just moving, like, we're moving down the ladder to these, to more of these oppressions that they didn't even notice. It's also worth saying, like, there were people there who recognized what was right. There were people there that were recognized the death penalty was wrong, that women should have rights as men, that there should be universal suffrage, not just suffrage of the people who are property owning, that slavery was wrong. That was there, but it wasn't enacted. And I think... I want to give props to the people who got it anyways. No, yeah, definitely. And like, again, even what's here, I'm in favor of liberty. I'm in favor of security. I'm in favor of like personal property and and going from where they were coming from with no property. It's hard to say how they would even think of property. Like when they think of property, they're probably thinking about land. Yeah. Having land to work of your own and to assert like the right to property in a place where there was no previous idea of that right. Like that someone could come with a military and yeah, be like, we're yeah, taking yeah. your stuff now. And it's like, ah, shit, where's my declaration of rights? <laughs> like <laughs> they wanted to get that problem. Right. That makes sense. Cause part of me was like, why are they declaring the right to property? But then saying the only people who get this right are the people who have property. You know what I mean? Like it was a weird loop, but it's like, yeah, it can't be taken away on the whims of the other estate. That makes sense. I mean, I think all these rights here have a dark side in a way, except for maybe resistance to oppression. If you're talking about it in terms of literal oppression and and terror of people having authority over you that they can enforce with force arbitrarily. But like liberty has a dark side of like, you know, the over freedom terror. Oh yeah. Or like clamping down on like security we need to keep people safe so yeah like a police state sort of like militarism thing and just to specify with like the problem with freedom is like where you have freedom to die or you have freedom to be tortured you know like where you have freedom but without your basic necessities taken care of is pretty fucking dark freedom and then the dark side of property is obviously inequality Yeah, the right to having basic necessities taken care of isn't in this, but it is something that comes in in the Constitution that's introduced later, should mention. Like, their welfare and things like that start to get in. Like, there's a process of moving leftward throughout this whole thing. And so this initial document is just the start. Yeah, I mean, and like the people participating in this from the Third Estate who are doing like the tennis court oath shit, once the National Assembly is set up, in 1791 they passed like an anti-labor law like that there couldn't be any labor unions and the idea behind it was that like 
that was collective thinking rather than individualistic thinking and the revolution this liberal revolution is about right right give, right giving yeah. people that individuality and like being individual rational actors within the democratic system and it's like we shouldn't think about the french revolution in terms of like oh it's all these people who had all these crazy ideas that were all synchronized in a row <laughs> like they all thought this and then they all thought this and they all thought this it's like there was always this sort of like turbulent passing yeah, around of ideas and like changing and drifting further and further away from the monarchy and to strange polarizations of like very good and very bad things oh here this is one i really like number what is this number eight the law must only require punishments that are strictly and evidently necessary and a person can only be punished to established law it's not quite we should replace punishments with rehabilitation but only punish when like like really necessary is like i feel like it's the first inkling of that like okay like really should we be torturing people should like does hurting people make them stop doing bad things? This is pretty good. Law is the expression of the general will. Every citizen has a right to participate personally or through his representative in its foundation. It must be the same for all, whether it protects or punishes. All citizens being equal in the eyes of the law are equally eligible to all dignities and to all public positions and occupations, according to their abilities and without distinction, except of their virtues and talents. Of course, it's only referring to yeah, well, it does men say, and... Yeah, well, it does say all citizens. And so I wonder, because there was active and passive citizens. The active citizens are the ones who count. But, like, maybe they're saying they're all equal in the lies of the law, but, you know, like, according to their capacity. And we know that passive citizens don't have the capacity because they haven't got enough property to be... <laughs> to have a stake in this thing, in the running of the country. You know, like, I think there was some meritocracy idea kind of involved in, like, why these active citizens are the only ones who get it, because they're the ones who've proven themselves. Yeah, they're like the... The, the Elon Musks of their generation. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the king doesn't earn what he had. It's not fair. It's like, but me, yeah, I earned what I had. <laughs> Maybe that's just the whole problem with the French Revolution, why it went off the rails, is they didn't enfranchise enough people in the democratic process. And that would have naturally caused a little bit of moderation later on. Not moderation on the boldness of the ideas. In fact, it'd be more radical if they included the lower classes in the yeah. democratic process. They'd be like, yeah, end slavery right away. Give votes to women, you know, enfranchise everyone. Radical in that sense. But then when they're like, oh, should we kill other members of the legislative assembly with guillotines for crimes? No, I think we need to have, we need to figure out some sort of barrier here where we could have very fierce political debates, but have that never reach the area where we criminally prosecute each other for their opinions or sympathies. I think that's the problem is that they didn't, they actually didn't go far enough. The fake radicalism of the circular guillotine chamber was a problem of um, being insufficiently radical in the pursuit of justice. I was about to praise number 15, but then it, I caught on it in a way of like, okay, so number 15 is the community has the right to hold accountable every public official in its administration, which like sounds really good. And it was a radical idea that like you could hold accountable the king and the people under the king and like the community like has this right. That was one of the biggest radical ideas in here. But 
<laughs> just what I'm thinking of hold accountable in a kind of like a horrifying way of, you know, any public official who steps out of line, we're going to hold you accountable. Yeah, we're being pretty hard on this document, but I think it's... It wasn't a safe birth over in the French Revolution. No. I mean, it's a primary example of the transition to a new type of society. The lifestyle back then was... There's a lot of poverty and violence, and you just have to understand it in that context. Like, some of these rights are pretty good. I think some of them don't seem that good to us because we take it for granted that, of course, we should get these things. For sure, And it's probably due to, at least in part, these these people. So, you know, thanks for that. Well, when I think of the Jacobins as being, like, bougie intellectuals, it becomes funny they went to a tennis court. (laughs) They're like, oh, I've got my keys. Like... (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're just, like, in, like, white sweaters and, like... (laughs) And, And they're wearing culottes. They're wearing fancy pants. Right, yeah, no, they were... They're all like, oh, I've got my keys to the tennis court. Oh, nice pants, boys. Let's <laughs> stick it to this king. The king's too powerful. I haven't had a good monocle polish in days. Let's start an intellectual gentleman's club to complain about our lack of monocle polishing supplies. Necessary stage of history. I know you're kidding, but I just want to specifically say that it's not a necessary stage of history. Like, it could have developed in any number of different contradictory ways. And (laughs) going through the order of ideologies and social relations that we did, it's not something that's permanent and immutable and what happened in any planet with any civilization in any galaxy. This is something that's contingent. It's wrong to think about history as moving in an inevitable single direction. There's just thousands of potential futures at every given moment. And our inherited situation is our inherited situation. It's real and we need to address it. But we shouldn't treat it as some permanent immovable thing. They, they could have focused on totally different things in this revolution. There could have been a perfectly good revolution that has a completely different theoretical basis that achieved different good things at other different weird costs. Yeah, yeah. No, I just find the idea of a necessary stage of history, it tickles my brain in a really funny way. Me too. I find it funny and I say it. I partially went on this rant because I like catch myself saying it so much and I find it funny, but it's like, it's actually detrimental thinking. We need to keep our brains a little more nimble about these ideas. (laughs) And sort of like, uh, you know, how ironic racism can sometimes be racism. I think ironic, turgid Marxism can sometimes be turgid Marxism. (laughs) I had to get that off my chest. I've been feeling guilty about this recently. If I had to rank that rant and the Declaration of Rights of Man against each other, I wouldn't because they're such different contexts. Really, they're not comparable in that way. Yeah, you know, I would say that as a historical event, what I just said doesn't compare at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as far as content that's applicable to modern thinking, if we want to move forward as people who want to see a radical transition in society, still close. But the... (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's much closer for sure. For whatever shortcomings it has, it's like there's something really radical about liberalism asserted against feudalism damn rad libs (laughs) yeah yeah though these are the true rad libs because they're liberals yeah but they're radicalized they're chopping off heads this is the truest rad libs of history (laughs) so yeah the way that the french revolution unfolded in this sort of like series of escalating steps and these conflicts it's interesting and, and just that it wasn't like a single moment it wasn't like 
all the French people of the third estate, like the common people in France, all suddenly Rose were like, up. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's rise up. We've got the right ideas. Time to implement the correct ideas. Go and, in there, chop off the king's head that evening, implement the new society next day. Yeah, it, Bada bing. it unfolded in this like series of steps with the third estate trying to shake off and be like, nah, man, like we're serious. Give us votes. Like, let our voices actually matter. Like, right. So it gets to the point where there is what is called the Women's March on Versailles, when a large amount of French commoners are going to Versailles to bring their Declaration of the Rights of Man directly to the royal family and demand that they ratify it, demand that they acknowledge it. Yeah, it's it's been some months since this Bastille was stormed and tensions have just kept rising. And they, I guess it's these women called the Poissard. They're fishwives is literal translation. The th- things I saw in it described them as fearless, brawny women who led this march to Versailles wielding giant fish knives, which is just a wonderful image. <laughs> brawny, fearless women with giant knives marching on the palace in Versailles. They get there and I think they even like they get the king to say, yeah, sure, whatever. I endorse the rights of man. And they're like, "Okay, and now come back to Paris with us. And then the palace is just kind of silent. And so uh, over the course of this night, more and more people are showing up here. By morning, there's 20,000 people outside the palace and they storm in, behead some guards try to kill the queen, but they couldn't, take a bunch of flour from the royal stormhouses, take the royal family, put them in some carts, march them back to Paris. So they essentially take the royal family prisoners. And say, you're going to live in Paris now because the Declaration of the Rights of Man says that public officials need to be accountable. Yeah. And just so you know who's boss here, when we march you back to Paris... We're going to have a bunch of your guards' heads on sticks that we're going to kind of parade in front of you. It's part of our sort of victory caravan. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The heads on sticks. It's a nice touch. (laughs) It's a a striking image. Just if there's any doubt that our side represents justice, we've got some heads on sticks. (laughs) And now we go to the king and queen being carted off back to Paris, led by their former guards' heads on spikes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sign the Declaration of the Rights of Man. I'll sign off on anything. I love it. He has been talking about rights for men for months. Can't get him to shut up about it. We're on your side. We love it. It's great. So when we get to Paris, I'll get letters sent to Austria. The troops here in no time. All these people will be dead. As dead as our former guards. Yeah, I mean, this, the rights of man stuff makes no sense. It's crazy. The sovereignty lies with you. You're the king. Yeah, I'm the king. The sovereignty lies with me. It's just kind of how things are. What's, oh, a constitution. Oh, yeah, of course. I'll sign that. So a constitutional monarchy is what you're saying. How novel. That's really cool. That's (laughs) neat. We were just saying how neat that would be. So yeah, I think we get those secret letters sent out, you know, neighboring places with kings and queens. They're not going to want the revolution to spread. All of Europe is going to be behind us on this because if we fall, then they're next. Oh, my favorite of the rights of man? Oh, that's tough. I guess, you know, the the free communication of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious 
of the rights of man. I know that much. Oh yeah, even <laughs> whatever they say about me, I don't mind. I just want the people to express themselves. So we come back in with the military and I say we really torture these guys. We don't just kill them, we like really torture them. Oh yeah, there have, make, there have to be consequences. Yeah, make an example of it and then everyone will fall in line and learn to love the king again after that. Yeah. After I'm real, once you demonstrate your strength, they'll love you again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I love it. I love this whole caravan, the coming up to Versailles thing. I'm with the revolution. I'm Yeah, we I'm were a, we were planning to move back to Paris anyway. It's wonderful. I'm not like the other kings. I'm a cool king. And I think this is great. I'd burn the entire city to the ground if it meant squashing these bugs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You can always rebuild a city, but ideas, they die when you kill the people who have them. Absolutely, yeah. And that's also what I advocate for. And so our intrepid king and queen played it cool, escaped and returned triumphantly with a glorious foreign army to crush the radicals of their own country, winning back the people's love and ruling in lavish joy and royal beauty for many decades to come. Let's talk about the friend of the people, Jean-Paul Marat. He was a journalist who wrote polemics from his bathtub. Yeah, he had a skin condition. He had to spend most of his time in a medicated bath. Yeah. <laughs> which is just amazing. <laughs> it's something, yeah, it's so cartoony about it. And like, there's so many things like that in the French Revolution that are just such crazy archetypes. So this, this Marat guy, he, he's got a bad skin condition. He's soaking in a medicated bath and writing really sort of bloodthirsty polemics calling for death and execution. Yes. He like right from the start, he started publishing his newspaper, which was called Friend of the People, Lamy de Pup, after the Declaration of Rights of Man instituted free press within Paris. So he's like, oh, I can print my thing now. And just immediately was like, we need to kill everyone standing in the way of this progress that we're fighting for together. In the pre-revolutionary period, he was a scientist, right? Yeah, and a doctor, a physician as well. So just like a learned guy. In one of his pre-revolutionary writings, he wrote that society should provide basic needs such as food and shelter for its citizens, that the French state was responsible to provide a guaranteed basic outcome for the people of France. Right. And that death penalty shouldn't be class stratified. It should apply equally to everyone. And it's funny, the guaranteed basic outcome idea, it's still pretty radical to this day. Again, it's like we're talking about this 235 years later, and he was making points from his medicated bathtub, (laughs) which are still outside of the Overton window. Yeah, still relevant and still, (laughs) yeah, still radical today. Yeah, a lot of great political positions he had, Murat. But he had a real polemical, angry boy side, and he's sort of notorious for being like a resentful, bitter guy. Yeah, like how we mentioned memes being kind of prefigured in the revolutionary context with these political cartoons. I kind of see Murad as like a proto-blogger, like a super popular Yeah, like a keyboard warrior. Keyboard warrior, exactly. Yeah, he's in his mother's basement, except it's not his mother's basement. It's his medicated bathtub. And he's writing these, you know, by some accounts, paranoid conspiracy in 
screeds in this newspaper where he would print kind of whatever rumors he heard, really, really whipping people up. And yeah, he was a big supporter of the radical revolutionary left politics of the time, which was a lot coming out of the Jacobin Club. Like we mentioned, there was a lot of political clubs in France. This was started significantly before the revolution, but became a very sort of important and popular voice within this revolutionary period. And this is a club that it costs money to join. So it was sort of bourgeois. And it was also women weren't allowed to join it. So it was only men. They could watch from the balcony, I read. <laughs> So it's yeah, one of the popular ideas in the Jacobin Club is like rights for women, but then they're like within the club. Well, you know, let's not go crazy. Hanging up on the balcony. Yeah, well, was, I, really I was ridiculous. reading that it was a popular idea at the time in France among like doctors that the shape of women's skulls showed that they were incapable of understanding or participating in science or politics. Yeah, to bust out the calipers and. <laughs> all that shit. So there's a lot of Jacobins that were part of like this national assembly. And so basically like King Louis the 16th in 1791 attempted to flee and was caught and Prussia and Austria issued a declaration warning the people of France saying that if any harm came to Louis the 16th that they were going to invade and that they were going to use their force to alter the political course of France, which caused a factional dispute within the Jacobins, where there was a section of people saying, we should go to war with Prussia and Austria over this, spread the revolution there, spread our good ideas, spread the stuff that we've been working on. Which is actually like exactly what Louis and Marie Antoinette wanted. Well, because Marie Antoinette, again, was like one of the youngest daughters of like, I think the Duchess of Austria, if I'm getting that right. People have even speculated she was writing letters trying to get them to invade the country because they were like, save us. You know, we're, <laughs> we're being held in Paris and we tried to escape and it didn't work. So I think it, it makes sense the faction that wanted to go to war with Austria, the Girondists, would be like, okay, they're threatening us. Let's threaten them back. Let's spread the revolution. And then the other faction is like, no, like that's going to fuck us over, basically, because we're probably not going to win a war with Austria right now. And Marat is on the side of not the Girondists. He's against the Girondists. Like from here on out, they're a big target of his political writings. And, you know, his his kind of attitude and stuff is setting this tone of like heavy factionalism between these two groups and the National Assembly. Well, the funny thing about the split there between these two groups is they're so close to one another. Like they're actually a factional split from the same group, from the same revolutionary school of thought. Yeah. And it's sort of, yeah, like the narcissism of small differences kind of thing that they were close and allied and like intellectually some of the leaders of the revolution and surrounding the debates that happened around whether or not to go to war with Prussia and Austria started forming this really sort of like bitter rivalry. I read that in the National Assembly, the Girondists and the Jacobins would spend a lot of time like jeering and making fun of each other. They just became like this like sniping, bitter sort of thing. Right. Whereas like the vast majority of the National Assembly wasn't associated with either group. And they would, generally speaking, this group would tend to vote with where the best oratory was coming from. Right. So it's just, it, there's something, again, like, I just want to put a flag on that as one of the things about the French Revolution that remind me of the context that I find myself now in left-wing politics, where I see 
echoes of the French Revolution in my day-to-day organizing life and the toxic online sniping circles and stuff like that is like people who are so close to each other like yeah leninists and trotskyists were just the most bitter like <laughs> enemies ever yeah, i mean like whether or not you go to war with austria it's a big policy difference between the two but if your system isn't set up to handle people having those kinds of differences of opinion it's not going to go well so because king louis the 16th tried to escape a lot of the French people felt pretty betrayed by that. Like they felt that it was indicative of him plotting against their revolution, which he at least to some degree pretended to support or act as if he was supportive of. Yeah. When they had him in Paris, they had him like signing all these documents to limit his powers, instituting a constitutional monarchy. And the Girondists supported that. They were in favor of going that route until he escaped and then kind of both sides agreed we need to depose the king. Yeah, popular sentiment started to shift towards a republican strategy rather than like a constitutional monarchy strategy when he attempted to escape. They also they found documents like they found correspondence that he'd had. Yeah, after they deposed him, they found some correspondence and they they planned that he was like trying to put out feelers for how can we reverse this? He he wasn't on board the way that he was kind of iffily pretending to be. I mean, who could blame him? I mean, if, when you're being <laughs> taken away from your luxury home in a caravan that involves the your beheaded guards, it's, it's hard to be enthusiastic for people power in the, those moments, I'm sure. But, you know, the other thing those heads on sticks might clue you into is that your head and its attachment to your body is in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Will Louis the Sixteenth get to keep his head? Stay tuned to find out. So they, yeah, they've had him in Paris for like all two years ish since that October March on Versailles. It's in the same period that the guillotine gets invented. Robespierre's against it at first. Marat in his newspaper loves the idea. Great equalizer. Uh, the escape happens in that time period, and then summer of 1792, they storm the palace in Paris and put the king and queen in prison, declare France a republic for the first time. This is the first time the guillotine gets used on the palace guards. And so, yeah, it gets the, the very first guillotinings happen at that moment, at the moment that the French Republic is declared. And so this becomes a argument between the Jacobins and the Girondists of should the king be executed? Should the king lose his head? The Girondists tend towards no, just leave him in prison. Yeah, the, they're they're kind of like he's a bargaining chip. You know, Austria is marching on Paris at this point, or it seems likely they're going to be. So they're like, you know, it might be beneficial to keep him around, and also just why? Why kill him? And the Jacobins are like. If we keep him around, they might put him back on the throne. This is like, we need a clean break. We need to get rid of this guy. Uh, Robespierre, by that point, has changed his mind. He's on the side of killing the king. Says we have to kill the king to save the revolution. Yeah, and he's like the leading Jacobin at the time, right? Like he's he's the... Yeah, he's one of the best speakers in the National Assembly. Very popular guy at this point. And he's like, guys, I know I used to be against the death penalty, but we should chop this guy's head off. Yeah, yeah times have changed. And yeah, they ended up having a vote on that at the National Assembly and a little one vote over half the votes voted for executing him. Oh, uh, really? It was that close one vote? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it, it actually wasn't that close because the other side was split up among a few different things. There was like, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was like 720 seats in the National Assembly and 361 voted kill him, no conditions. It was like 35 or something like that said kill him with conditions. And uh, there was a few other different things. So it was it was a majority that said kill right. him one way or the other, but kill him without conditions had over 50% of the total votes in the end. And I mean, you know, out of all the killings in this whole saga, the one that I feel the least iffy about, you know, you're overthrowing the monarchy. I think it's too crazy to say you kill the king. On that note, actually, I've always thought that regicide would make a great name for a child. <laughs> you call him Reggie for short. And so the people declared France a republic for the very first time in history and then chopped off the king's head, put it up on a spike and paraded it around. The monarchy had ended. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't it, son? That's crazy. People wouldn't do that today, would they, Dad? That's olden times, right? Oh, yeah. Heads on sticks. Not something that we do anymore. Thanks for teaching me about this, Dad. Reading. Oh, no problem. I just love history so much, and I love sharing it with you. I'm glad you're excited about the things I'm excited about. I always like bedtime stories. I like reading them to you. It makes me feel closer to you. It makes me feel closer to you, Dad. Yes. Thanks for bringing me water for my bed. It's important to drink water. You don't want your mouth to be dry. We take that for granted sometimes. If you don't mind me saying, son, having you really pulled my life together. I kind of just I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing before that. And I uh, didn't always make the best choices. But you gave me a reason to do the best that I could because I knew that you deserved it. So... In a way, you, you saved me and made me the man I am today. You made me the man I am today, Dad. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> that's a very, very young man. A boy. A boy. It's true. I love you, Dad. I love you. So, uh, yeah, it's I'm going to head out and turn off the lights, and you head right off to sleep. Dad, I've got one more question. Oh, shoot. What is it, son? Did everything... um. And the French Revolution work out in the end after they killed the king? Did the good guys win? Oh, well, there's a lot left to this story. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. Okay, good night. Good night. Marquis de Cordeset was elected to the National Assembly. He's a distinguished and accomplished guy even before the revolution. The secretary of the French Academy of Sciences. He was a supporter of women's rights, supporter of the abolition of slavery. He drafted a school program which was put into practice in France. And he believed that scientific progress and human rights and development were interconnected. He was executed by guillotine in 1793. Jean-Sylvain Bailey presided over the tennis court oath. In the National Assembly, Bailey was one of the deputies who secured the passage of a decree that declared Jews to be French citizens in 1791, and he took over the mayor of Paris after they had put the last one's head on a stick and actually helped to mitigate a food crisis that allowed the revolution to keep going at a critical stage. He had his head chopped off by a guillotine in uh, 1793. 
Francois Noel Babeuf is considered by some to be the first revolutionary communist or anarchist in history. The followers of him were likely the first to use the term communist. He was an advocate for democracy and the abolition of private property. He ran a French revolutionary newspaper called the Tribune of the People, and he died via guillotine in 1797. Marie-Jean de Seychelles was actually a noble-born lawyer and judge who, despite his upbringing, became an early proponent of the revolution, even taking part in the storming of the Bastille. In the National Assembly, he was a fierce critic of the Girondins, and he was one of the writers of the Constitution of 1793, which was the best one. And then in 1794, he was sent to the guillotine and had his head chopped off. Olympe de Gouges was a writer during the French Revolutionary period, sort of proto-feminist, who wrote something called the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen as a sort of response to the Declaration of the Rights of Man. In it, she asked, Man, are you capable of being fair? A woman is asking, Tell me, what gave you sovereign right to oppress my sex? She was known for her feminist writings, and in 1793, she was executed via guillotine. Jacques-Pierre Brissot was an early advocate of prison reform and years before the revolution was publicly advocating that the subjects had the right to revolt against the misrule of a monarch. He also railed against church hierarchy and he was the founder of the abolitionist society, the Friends of the Blacks and worked with Thomas Paine on a revolutionary newspaper. And he was guillotined in 1793. Before the revolution, Maximilian Robespierre was a lawyer who worked to represent the downtrodden in society. He's a great orator who was well-read. Heck, he was even known as the incorruptible. He had great politics. He was totally against the death penalty. He's against slavery. He's in favor of women's rights, universal suffrage. Didn't want to go to war with foreign countries. And they sent him to the guillotine in 1794. So yeah, in the end, 2,639 people were executed by guillotine, mostly over a course of 90 days. Yeah, that kind of really picked up the pace at the end there. But we'll get to a lot of more of that next time. We weren't able to get through the whole revolution this episode because it took so long. It wasn't just a moment. There's also sort of like more than one revolution, like mini revolution over the course of it. Yeah, we've already been through two. Like first, the revolution into the constitutional monarchy, tennis courts, all of that process of like putting the king under heel, and then the second one of like declaring a republic. And there's still more to come. This really unfolding thing. And it's fascinating how that early on, the left-right distinction is kind of like who supports absolute monarchy versus who supports constitutional monarchy. And then it kind of shifts to who supports the constitutional monarchy and who thinks we should go to a republic. And then it's kind of like the more conservative Republicans versus the more radical Republicans. And it's like there's this process of shifting what the left-right means, even through the course of this, the very like short period of time, historically speaking, a lot of shifting of what seems possible. And it's not because like the left keeps on killing the right wing people. It's like everyone's ideas are changing. No, yeah. Most of the like intense killing happens at the end. The stuff we've talked about in detail has mostly been 
killing for a purpose. Like we're storming the Bastille, we're killing the guards, we're storming the palace. We're a lot of guards got killed. One of the risks of the job is why they get paid is like there's yeah. a small chance that you might get killed. What are you going to do? Join a union? Sorry, no. <laughs> the Jacobins outlawed that. No, I think I think the Jacobins were against that law oh yeah the, the guy who proposed it was the founder of the jacobin yeah, club was, but jacobins over the course of the revolution the faction known as the jacobins had grown more radical than their yeah. founder so yeah we'll be back soon with another app yeah there's more to say and it's also something like reading about the french revolution i keep on being like oh but there's this gap here like it skips over this thing and it's like that sounds really interesting i want to know more about that thing and there's like different angles on it there's different interpretations of what happened like because it's history rather than yeah I, it's not like we're listing the atomic weight of various substances like we're right, talking, yeah you, you could study like historical events for your entire life like different people's perspectives on them like going over primary documents over and over again like there's an endless amount of research to be done on every event yeah because there's so many characters there's so many things happening at once all yeah. the time and all these forces and all these patterns all these different lenses to interpret what happened and just cumulatively you've just got too many potential thing you can't be exhaustive with the study of history no because also collectively keeps... we can work towards that but that's about it that's maybe a good utopian goal is like comprehensively study history a horizon to keep shooting for for sure well this has been the seriously wrong podcast everyone it's been a pleasure hosting your ears and thank you so much for donating to the show that's like the best thing in the world Makes my heart explode with gratitude. And did it fend off your flu? Is the flu gone? No, the flu is not gone. I flu guess you're uh, still yeah. here. I mean, I'm. I think I'm out of out of the woods. I feel pretty good now, like to record and stuff. Yeah. But who knows how I'm gonna feel when I go back to that bed? Get those dry lips. Start <laughs> rolling over all the time. You know that space between asleep and awake, where you don't really fully experience the deepness of sleep and you're slightly aware aware enough to look at something or to adjust your position and they're like oh my face feels bad i'm gonna move it like <laughs> bleh, bleh. like uh, i can go get water except that seems painful yeah like move. i don't have enough energy like i'm not awake enough to be like oh i'm gonna go get water take care of myself make sure that everything's okay or if, even if you do, you're like, oh, my body aches too much to drink too much water. I'm just going to have a little bit of water real quick. At least your head's still attached to your body. Yeah, that's true. That's Something great. Something to be thankful for. I love that. Yeah. And Something I, we can all be thankful for if we're listening to this. So. And along those lines, let me assure our listeners, not a royalist sympathizer. The rumors going around. Yeah, when we were joking, like, oh, kill the king, then bread will fall from the sky. We weren't trying to say, don't kill the king. It was just just absurdity. We're not royalist sympathizers. A lot of people not... have been accusing our show unfairly of being royalist sympathizers. And I'm putting my foot down. It's not Let's us. End to that rumor right now. Spread the word. That's not true. That's the new rumor. The new rumor says, actually, the word is that's not true. Thanks for listening, everyone. Feel free to hit up our comment section on YouTube or on our website, send us an email or get on our Discord server. And I would love to hear feedback on this episode. And if there's anything from the French Revolution that you think we should be aware of, because there's like a lot to it that I don't have a comprehensive understanding. Let's have a great week. Seriously? Seriously? Boys are stupid. Seriously? Seriously? Wrong. Seriously? Wrong. Seriously? Wrong. Seriously? Wrong. Seriously? 
Are they wrong? I think they're wrong 100%. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're wrong. Seriously. They're always wrong. That is absolute wrong. Seriously? They're so wrong. Wrong. Very nice words, but happens to be wrong. 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 Seriously. Seriously. Wrong. Seriously. Next time on Seriously Wrong, the terror. Here's a quote from Mark Twain. There were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember and consider it. The one wrought murder and hot passion, the other heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other lasted for a thousand years. Our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. What is the horror of swift death by the axe compared to the lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror, which we've all been taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all of France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror, which none of us have been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. Mark motherfucking Twain. See you next week, everyone.